1: Hello podcast listeners, it's Connor here. Our podcast today is a recording of a great conversation we staged last week for a video event in partnership with the White cube Gallery here in London. The event focused on an exhibition by leading artist Jan Vo, which closed just the day before the US presidential election earlier this week. Vaux's work speaks to this moment in history very powerfully. His work focuses on the nature of empires and the interconnectedness of life across the globe. It feels like a very pertinent conversation this week as we all seek to make sense of the election and the intensifying pandemic. And if you would like to see a visual representation of the works discussed in the podcast, you can watch a video version of today's podcast on the Intelligence Squared YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy the discussion and now let's go to the episode.
2: Hello and welcome everyone to a special event which White Cube are hosting in partnership with Intelligence Squared. Today we're talking about the work of the artist Jan Vo, whose exhibition Chikshulub is currently shown at the gallery. Jan's work, while deeply personal, is inspired by great sweeps of political and historical events and juxtaposes ready-made objects from very different contexts to challenge the way we think about them. The exhibition spans a vast time frame. The title, Chicxulub, is the Mayan name given to the crater buried beneath the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, caused by the asteroid which struck the Earth 66 million years ago and allegedly, or probably, wiped out the dinosaurs. The exhibition includes a timeline, accessible on your phone via a QR code, which charts the collapse of 22 empires, from the fall of Persepolis at the hands of Alexander the Great in 330 BCE, by the execution of Atahualpa, the last Inca empire, in 1533, to the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, marking the end of the Japanese Empire. Many of the works from the exhibition touch on the themes of fallen empires, of decay and rebirth, and we're brought right up to the present moment by an installation that's literally being dismantled and burned piece by piece as we draw closer to November the 3rd, the day when Donald Trump may or may not be re-elected as President of the United States of America. Joining me to discuss this extraordinary exhibition and explore its themes and resonances are three visionary speakers. Margot Heller, who's director of the South London Gallery, which stayed at an exhibition by Jeanne Vaux in 2019.
3: Hello.
2: Hello, Margot. Shahida Bari, academic author and philosopher at the University of the Arts in London. She's a frequent broadcaster on BBC television and radio. Hi. Hi. And Roy Vickery, member of the South London Botanical Institute and a legendary writer on plant folklore and whose books are much admired by Jean Vaux. Hi, Roy.
4: Hello.
2: Margot, you did an exhibition with Jean Vaux, as I said, at the South London Gallery last year called Untitled. Actually, titling an identity for Jean Vaux is is critical, isn't it? I mean, he's Vietnamese-born, he's Berlin-based, he's a Danish citizen. Um, Let's just unpack a little of where he came from and how that impacts on the way we frame his exhibition.
3: The exhibition at South London Gallery last year was called Untitled and typically of Yan's work had a biographical reference but also a wider cultural reference so the cultural reference was to the you know the ubiquitous presence of the use of untitled in contemporary art um, but the biographical reference um, was very specific. Yan, having been born in 1975 and brought up in Vietnam, and then when he was four years old, his father taking him and his family to head for the States, but then being intercepted by a tanker, being located in a refugee camp in Singapore, and then finally settling in Denmark, where Yan spent most of his childhood. And some years later, he went to Vietnam with his mother, and they visited. They visited a cemetery, and Yan, who spoke Vietnamese but didn't write it, didn't uh, was very surprised to see that on a number of gravestones the words "vo yan," so his own name but inverted, and then with the addition of a, an accent on the o. And so, of course, his curiosity was piqued, and his He asked his mother what was the meaning. Of Vo Yan, and she explained that it meant nameless or unnamed. So, of course, he was struck by the huge number of graves of unidentified casualties from the Vietnam War. So, from that title is of untitles is bringing in that very strong uh, biographical reference and a story. I mean, Yan loves stories and the interweaving of all sorts of references, but always coming back to his own biography. And I think this show at White Cube, it's been born of this period of time during lockdown and the global pandemic, when Jan has increasingly spent time in his farm and studio space in Goldenhof near Berlin, where he has spent increasing amounts of time over the past three years, and particularly the last months, and has become really fascinating. By the natural world and plants and loving gardening himself, and really, this exhibition displays that and how he's pursued that interest and interwoven it with his own artistic practice, but also reflections on shelter, um, homeliness, refuge during this period of, of international crisis, like one uh, yeah, we haven't experienced before. No, homeliness
2: and refuge is an interesting starting point. I mean, there is a journey that you can make around the exhibition, but uh, whether there is a coherent narrative is something that we can interrogate as we go along. Uh, There's certainly all sorts of different ways that one can go. But literally, as you enter the gallery, the first thing you see down the corridor is a fire. Um, Shahida, that homeliness is interesting, isn't it? Uncanny, maybe? I don't know.
0: Yeah, well the the first thing you see of course when you come into the courtyard of the gallery is the arbour, so there's this quite remarkable and very disarming structure which is cedarwood, a kind of cedarwood structure with seating and then plants potted around it and it's it's beautiful and elegant and you want to sit there and you want it in your garden what you don't expect is for it something like that something as charming homely as that a sanctuary to be in the courtyard of a contemporary art gallery and I I love the white cube but it is also the epitome of that kind of steely glassy contemporary gallery space and I think he's trying to disarm you and slightly bewilder you from the very beginning and then as you say exactly Tim as you come in you're hit by this wall of heat because you have this network of furnaces these cast iron furnaces that are exuding quite powerful heat and I I don't know if you're the same as I am Margot and and, and Tim and Rob but I... love a fire and I'm used to being freezing in a gallery and so you naturally want to congregate around the fires. In fact that's exactly what people do and I think that Jan is trying to gently, very very gently supplant the ways that we usually behave in galleries. I think he's trying to change our sense of the ambience of a gallery and it is homely. Suddenly you're asked to make yourself feel Comfortable or at home, and it did strike me when I was learning about his history—the one that you've just recounted, Margot—that that there is something about what it means for a displaced person to have to make themselves at home in places. He's also asking us to try and make ourselves at home in this gallery space.
2: Yeah, it was raining when I arrived, so I didn't really spend much time in the arbor. I went in to warm myself up and dry dry out. <laughs> There's, it's very elemental, isn't it, from the start, Roy? I mean, it, it, we have earth and plants outside, and obviously we'll come on to the, the more stunning display or dramatic display inside. But then to be hit by fire and light, I think it's a surprise. You've been a curator as well as a writer. Uh, what was your first impression of, of the immersion of the experience of the gallery?
4: Well, my curatorial work was very much behind the scenes. I wasn't putting on displays for other people to see. Uh, Well, I was very much struck by this installation in the front, which I thought, to me, symbolised both the resilience of nature and also the fragility of nature. It looked as though if you knocked against it, it would collapse. But on the other hand, there's a certain strength there as well.
3: I think one of the things that really struck me was actually how difficult it was to locate oneself in terms of a response to the work because there are clearly those references to homeliness but I felt it was also about survival in a much more basic form but then as you said the presentation is very clean and very specific Uh and has a very strong aesthetic and there also seems to be this sense of creating rooms without walls using light in different ways the way you know the way people behave and congregate around light and fire and are naturally drawn to it and I think that is one of the beauties of the work is that it throws in all these possibilities and different different possible interpretations I guess but I mean I felt a sense of optimism but I also felt that it was a very literally quite dark side I mean it's quite dark because there's not that much light but there is hope and optimism there but there is a A sort of potential for it to be a sort of a sort of post-apocalyptic landscape as well to me pushing that in this context of this concrete flawed kind of quite cool
2: and a network of furnaces in a in a space without any artificial light I mean there is one gallery that has it should sound more sinister than we're in some ways making it seem. So it's the ambivalence there. I mean, I I thought initially when I walked in of kind of uh, death chambers. But then, of course, there is that kind of warmth and and homeliness too.
0: I think that's right, I think that I think that's the point isn't it that home isn't as easy as a Laura Ashley sofa and you know chintz curtains that home is actually for many of us an artifice it 's artificial it 's a structure, and I think margot's entirely right that he's playing with those. ambivalences that the fire does of course remind you of of the holocaust it's impossible not to think of a furnace in a gallery as as having that resonance but then it also emanates heat it also draws you to it and it forms a kind of artificial community and it's 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 very tempting to think about his history as a displaced person as a uprooted person and to try to understand his interest in rooting things, plants, botanicals, trees even, heat that would create a community, But that history might, might make you think about the ambiguities of a home and the artifice of a home, really.
2: Let's, let's move on, th- with, because each of the fires is, is fuelled by logs, and there are piles of logs by each fire, but we discover, moving down through the gallery to the, to the, to the, the, the largest gallery at White Cube at the end, that actually the logs come from an American flag. And it's a very specific American flag, not the contemporary one, but um, well, perhaps you'd like to pick up on that, uh, Margot?
3: Yeah, well, I was going to say, well, it's the the flag, the original American flag, and then there are the 13 stars, but it also refers to the stars of, of Vietnam. And the wood is used throughout the course of the exhibition to fuel the fires. So it does as you enter into this room, there's a kind of another element of one of the many stories that Jan is telling through this exhibition. And throughout the course of the show, the, the wood pile gradually disintegrates until at the end of the show, on the eve of the presidential election, there will be no flag left at all and the, the stars will be on the ground. And Jan's talked about the how you know, again going back to the biographical reference, how he thinks that wood piles are you know just aesthetically among the most beautiful things ever and he's completely adores them so there's it's grounded in that but then you know with the fires that are burning they are there is a process of destruction uh, in a negative way but also a sense of rebuilding and you know survival so uh, and regeneration and i think that's another another theme that runs throughout this throughout this show but in terms of the the disintegration of this image of the flag. Yeah, that will leave that for the viewers to decide what to make of that. But it's clearly a strong political and possibly negative, well, or maybe optimistic, depending on how you're looking at it, uh, view.
2: I mean, it starts whole and moves towards the fragment, whereas so much else in the exhibition, Jahida, is fragmentary, isn't it? And uh, we have to move towards putting it into some kind of collective narrative, I suppose. So there's a nice nice push-pull on this, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that the whole exhibition is full of push-pulls and paradoxes and tensions. One of them for me is the idea of permanent things, things like medieval sculptures of saints and antique cornices that are hung on the wall and busts and putty and things. these Those things seem permanent, although they're in a state of rumination. And then on the other hand, you have more temporary things or more fragile things like the vine that go, grows through and interweaves through a statue of the Virgin Mary from the 15th century. And it's, it's housed in this modern brass vitrine. And so you have all these different periods sort of colliding with each other. And I think he is toying with or playing with ideas of permanence and temporality so even the firewood is you know something that's going to decay and turn into ashes and then around them there are sarcophagi in boxes things that seem permanent that ought to last forever that get housed in museums lying in a state of ruination in a, a carnation box and I think that's something that is quite powerful and a bit bewildering too you're trying to make sense of these disparate objects but i think the point earlier about how difficult it is to to erect a narrative around this is one of the things he's doing quite deliberately i think he wants to bewilder us slightly
2: B- before we get before we just interrogate this literal framing as well as a metaphorical framing roy i was very interested in your take on that statue of the virgin mary with i think it's an assertion, but a flower Uh, Around Because obviously, in a sense, it's a literal representation of what you often see in medieval or renaissance paintings, but it's also very contemporary rethinking of, you know, the found objects and and how the natural world intrudes or survives and so on. How how did you read that particular piece?
4: Well, I saw it as though this was a saying that the natural world will persist long after us and our artefacts have um, fallen away. That's how I read it, yes. Am I Is that a nasturtium? That is a nasturtium. Yes. Okay.
3: Yeah. There's this tension, isn't there, between the the natural world and the the man made world that runs throughout the exhibition, and everything's kind of in the left in the balance as to know what's going to win out. And I think in this piece as well, the the Madonna is propped up by the head of an axe, which again is another reference. That, you know, the way everything's interconnected and all of these stories interweave, I think, is really brilliant. And so I just wanted to draw attention to that axe head. And also, you know, it's being presented in this vitrine. So there's this, you know, in all of Jan's work, there's these these references to the past, the more recent past, the present, but always with a look to the future as well. And I think, you know, the whole of this exhibition demonstrates that. Uh,
2: The axe is part of the process of of taking down the tree from which the sculpture was carved uh, and then the natural world still grows, still persists, still moves on.
0: I, I, I think that's it's almost too easy to try to understand it in. To try and give the objects the the objects a kind of continuity. I mean, what, there would be one fairly direct and maybe quite persuasive reading of this, the statue that the Madonna and Child from fifteenth century in this vitrine and the vine as you know a, a kind of a, a, a reflective of Jan's Catholicism and ca- Catholic icono- iconography. You could understand it in a Christian context very easily. But it seems to me the 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 disparateness of the objects, the medieval axe head, the vitrine, the vine, all of those things are disrupting our possibilities for a narrative. And it occurred to me that maybe the reason for it is that if you are a person with multiple origins and identities like Jan is someone who has been deracinated, then you don't have access to an easy narrative, that you understand the world in fragments and different references. And actually, that's the challenge that he's presenting to us, to understand the world as it is experienced by people in fragmentary dislocated ways.
2: Let's look specifically at some of the pieces where they're in boxes, sometimes gilded, sometimes not. Uh, when you disc- when one articulates that there is a the fragment of putty sculpture in a beef eater dry box with a packet of cigarettes on the side it, where does it get you it's a kind of uh, it, it, you know you could say the old surrealist game about the chance encounter of a sewing machine and, and an umbrella on a dissecting table bring together two disparate realities and a third reality and you have some kind of poetic spark as lothairemard said i mean this is well beyond that kind of uh, post surrealist game but there's an element of it but in a sense it's he doesn't he doesn't seem to want us to go in a particular way we can go in any number of different ways but is it too open to have any profound meaning
3: well i think one of the things i mean there is poetry to it that in one on one level there's definitely humor to it on another but another thing which is running through the work is this questioning of sort of established hierarchies of different art forms, different materials, whether it's craft or architecture or design or fine art, and then what happens when things are displaced or fragmented. And, you know, Jan said something once about, you know, when statues are are displaced from their original location, then their proportions are all wrong somehow because they're no longer in that context and then squashing it into a carnation milk carton in this case, the 15th century fragment of uh, Christ, there is this sort of jarring discomfort about it, but it does create something new. And it's that thing of this sort of somehow endless possibilities of merging and hybridization. And you know, also, I suppose, about the hierarchy between or the relationship between commercialization and the kind of international brands which are known across the world and then the movement of fragments of sculptures through history and the theft of of them and transportation to different countries and yet and also for this image that's just been shown now with the the cardboard coke crate being gilded sort of as though it's some kind of precious icon and you know what are our values today and whose whose values and which of those values matter more. I think all of these things are brought to the fore by these works. Didn't he once
2: uh, take all the fragments of a, of a bronze cast of the Statue of Liberty and then disperse them? Uh, so there's the kind of conceptual thing about taking things apart, but the idea that there is a coherent whole at the end is evident in that work. Whereas when he plays with the fragment in a lot of these pieces, it, it's almost as if it, it's trying to stop our natural desire to bring it all together into some meaningful whole.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's right. And it's not sufficient to think that it's a kind of... It's not as serious as a kind of surrealist experiment because there's warmth and, and the comedy that... that the the humour that of his, his subjectivity that Margot mentioned in all of these works. But it, it did occur to me that these objects in the boxes, these found objects, and also the fact that the fires have to be maintained by the technicians, that he is also toying with playing with the conventions of a gallery and what we understand of art and so one of the things that happens is that obviously you start to think about the tradition of found objects Duchamp most obviously of course and I think when he's been asked about it he's acknowledged that he knows of him but that he isn't really an influence and I I don't think it is but you can't help but think that there is a kind of aesthetic complacency in the found object that the surrealists were relishing in that he cannot afford that his experience of dislocation and frag- fragmentation is political and historical and so the, the the found object becomes a different object in his hands it becomes a more political and historical object than an aesthetic object as well it seemed to me but perhaps I'm imputing too much like you say he he's so elusive and playfully he, he eludes your grasp again and again in
2: the show. He's also collaborative. I mean, you mentioned you need the technicians. There's a sense of collaborating with the past too. And, and the other thing, before we, we move on to the apocalyptic landscape or post-apocalyptic landscape of, of the plants in the large gallery, which is also collaborative, um, he's also very interested in public response and how different groups of people, particularly children, for example, interact with his work, which is obviously not going to be able to happen on the scale he'd want it in this exhibition. But it's something you work with him on, Margot. That's right, isn't it? He, he choreographs or collaborates with his audiences quite explicitly
3: in some ways. Yeah, well, collaboration is, in, it, he collaborates with different makers and different methods and, and draws on that uh, throughout his practice and his South London Gallery show was very much informed by by that where there were works by his tutor from the academy by his partner and so on there were sculptures based on Enzo Mari designs which actually there are in the White Cube uh, show as well and designs by Nana Ditzel, the textile designer and um, but for the South London Gallery we invited him to work across uh, both buildings but also on two housing estates and one of of which where we have a space for a permanent space for children and so we invited Jan to kind of create a work there and he asked for his commission to bring eight children who are regulars at the after school club to come to his farm in Guldenhof and you see an image of them here on one of the three pavilions one of which is in front of white cube right now and here's one at goldenhof with the children who who worked on um, modifying it and collaborated with jan on that project and then when they came back to art block continuing on the theme of wood he donated a large quantity of American walnut wood from the farm of Craig McNamara, who's the son of the late Robert McNamara, a former US defence secretary during the Vietnam War, of course. And so there's this rather beautiful story of this wood that belongs to the son of Robert McNamara being given to Jan to use for his practice. And then he used some of it, it to produce frames and seating and to line the walls of one of the spaces in the South London Gallery. And then children at Art Block used it to create their own objects.
2: I love that idea that the wood has a human history, but of course it has its own natural history too.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, Let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared.
2: Roy, let's let's move on to the to the, the the grand revelation, if you like. I mean, he is choreographing us as an audience into the large room. We see the flag, which we've just seen of, of wood of, of uh, piles of, of, of wood, but there are vitrines of plants. Well, sometimes vitrines, but actually, you know, they're growing. They're growing in in all sorts of different um, receptacles. Uh, you're um, you're a botanist. Um, I read this as a sort of wonderful generic landscape. Um, let's go to the specifics, though, of these plants. Is, is, does this evoke something very specific or is it is it actually generic, broadly speaking?
4: I think the interesting thing to me about the plants was the variety of plants he has there. Some of them are, by uh, London standards, quite exotic. Others are very ordinary things you'd see on your lawn or, you know, in your local common. So that was interesting how these things were mixed in that way. I rather liked the way they, the gallery had managed to keep them going so well. I have been to similar exhibitions. The plants look more than three-quarters dead. I was particularly interested in nasturtiums, some of which are not doing too well. And to me, the nasturtiums rather sort of symbolise the human race. I mean, you know, are, are we at a state now where we are in decline, where are there, Uh, empire that's the whole of the world which has been so detrimental to so many species even though it's been good for other species uh you know are we in that state where we are losing it and on the way out
2: that and that's interesting because the image we're looking at was you turn back aside from the flag there is a a beautifully classified or sort of perfect taxonomy of the fragments of an altarpiece
0: yeah, I, I thought that that was really striking for me, particularly next to these kind of large rusted cylinders of. That um, I felt like I'd seen those things before, not in artworks, but when I'd walked into a, a kind of Moorish ruin in Palermo. I've been in buildings where they've been left to ruination, and then a tree starts growing in them. And all of a sudden you see a tree in a room, or you see plants creeping up a wall, and there's a kind of profundity to it, a beauty to it, that that most fragile of things, nature, Will endure, and that all of those antiquities and structures that we think are meant to endure, they don't. They will fall into rack and ruin. And I found that really powerful. And also, it made me think, Roy, that I really need advice in growing my own garden. But and and actually, the the wildernesses, the gardens that we keep, and the kind of wild spaces that we think are wild, are not really wild. That real wildernesses are unmanicured. They are unruly. They will grow into the foundations of things. And I think that, that that's quite an. Important thing to remember that the wildernesses we think are are wild are not really wild, and that real wildernesses would supplant buildings. I mean,
3: I felt as well that um, in this, when I entered this room, that it did have a sort of strange, eerie, possibly futuristic feel to it, and that there were some, weather, whether intentional or not, references to ecological issues and so on, and this sense of you know. Our, the times that we're living through that and how precarious everything is in terms of the natural world and this kind of tension between the natural world and man-made world which we talked about before but with these lowered lights there's something very artificial feeling about the way the plants are being able to you know enable to survive in this interior landscape and I think this idea of inside and outside you know starting with this pavilion which is an open outdoor structure still implying a shelter when you before you enter the gallery and then you come inside and then the artist has brought in all these elements of the normally associated with the outside indoors comes across really really strongly in this in this landscape and I said I do feel that there is yeah literally and metaphorically quite a dark side to it as well.
2: Thinking in J.G. Ballard, I was also reminded of, it, of an exhibition Anselm Kiefer did at White Cube a long, long time ago, with that Old Testament quote about under your city's grass will grow, and the idea that every civilization in the end will will, will return to dust and ashes, and that nature will reclaim that that land. And, and, the, and the fragments of the altarpiece that we, we just saw, it seems to somehow suggest that Christianity, like every other human movement or every, every other uh, empire or civilization, has a finite period. It, it, it too will crumble. Um, it's a complex relationship that he has with Christianity and Catholicism. Um, let's try and
3: unpick that a little bit. Uh, Margot. <laughs> That's quite a task. Um, I'm not sure what he's going to think of whatever I say on that. <laughs> but yes, I mean, much of his, you know, there's been a thread around the work of missionaries and so on that that recurs in a number of his, of his works and this kind of religious conversion of Eastern countries by missionaries. And, you know, in his own family experience, he was brought up, as a Catholic, and had to go to church every Sunday, pretty much uh, exclusively throughout his childhood. And he talks about, you know, how increasingly difficult that becomes. And it was a theme of one of the many themes of his show at South London Gary, as well, you know, the dawning of his own homosexuality and the realisation that, you know, the Catholic Church was so anti- That and you know how do you locate yourself within a religion like that in those circumstances?
0: And the letter, of course, from the Catholic saint, which is one of the most interesting and curious installations, or or it's a it's a a exquisite handwritten letter, and it seems to be a copy of a letter written by. Catholic saint in 1861 and he commissions his father to reproduce it every time the piece is bought and there's something really strange and dislocating about it because it's in French and presumably I'm assuming his father can't read the French so it's a kind of reproduction without really understanding it but it's a reproduction and there is something about the way I say this as a child of migrants who doesn't really speak the language that my parents speak that there is a way in which we're dislocated from the languages that we inherit and he is sort of both playing with the Catholic archive this thing that you inherit but also how it how you can be alienated from that inheritance and how you can change it and translate it each time. I thought it was a remarkable thing, the letter. And also his poor father having to write out this thing without the help of a Microsoft Word to edit it. But it looks beautiful, really beautiful.
2: Say that there are 1,700 plus versions of this. Now, there's his father's copied this letter out this many times. And the, the, the Catholic saint, actually, I mean, the story is very interesting, isn't it? Because he was in prison, Facing death, execution, to be beheaded. And this letter is back to his father in France with some kind of humble acceptance of his fate. So there's the idea of faith, the relationship between father and son, that of course, Jean Vaux then picks up because it's his own father who copies the letter each time in this kind of edition or this gesture. Um, I don't know whether that's a gesture of reclamation or of appropriation or none of those things or both of those things. Mm. But it's a very, very moving. Uh, notion that every single letter has been painstakingly or lovingly copied, and, and I suppose that's the personal aspect of religion that he's, he's, he's um, adhering to or uh, um, bringing up. And there's a there's a sculpture called Beauty Queen, which is in the main space. I keep calling it the main space. There are many spaces, but the space with the plants, where there is the, f- the, the, the there's a the cast of feet, which initially reads. I, or I did, anyway. it the feet of Christ. But then we find out, actually, it's Danbo's partner, it's his lover, and um, it's, it hangs a, uh, beneath a, a Greco-Roman a torso. And then you start to see again this uh, the, the, the comments you were making earlier, Margot, about guilt and uh, illusion and maybe violation, but also love and, and how biography plays into it. I thought this was an incredibly powerful work, actually.
3: Yeah, it's very moving. And, you know, there's this use of a fridge in it that was from Jan's kitchen in his farm as I understand it but read in this context it seems to me to have references to morgues and and death and of course you know there is a global pandemic going on and it was made during that time I'm not saying I have no notion of whether any of these thoughts were going through Jan Bo's mind when he made this sculpture but it's this hybridization of of different elements to create something new that is very, very powerful.
0: And it's palpably tender that piece, isn't it? When you you have to bend down or and, or, or, or crouch down to to have the the, the feet at eye level, and it's it's, it's it's exactly as you describe it, Tim. It's impossible not to read it as Christ's feet on the cross. And then also, it looks a bit orgasmic. You know, the toys, the toes are slightly pointing, and then you can see it's in brass, but you can see or bronze, I think it's in bronze, and you can see the veins of his his partner's feet. And I don't know, don't we we know our lovers' feet, don't we? We know we know our lovers' feet. We know what they look like, and there's a kind of really tender knowledge. But then it's been cast in this very cold material, and it's put in this fridge, as you say, Margot. I I don't know, all sorts of things are going on with it, but it's it's rather wonderful and it really repays attention, I think.
2: It changes fundamentally the way you view the piece when you know that it is his partner's feet. In the same way that were it his, it would read in a slightly different way. Where is the self in in his work, Margot? Elusively always there, but never quite graspable
3: yeah i think the self is there in his mind and his creative process and i think that's that is his oeuvre is this this continuum of uh, drawing on all of these different sources and references and you know it's a kind of representation of all of our kind of human makeup which is references from multiple different time frames from different cultures from the individuals we meet from chance and happenstance And, yeah, as this sort of continuum between past, present and always a kind of look to the unknown future. Uh, So I think that the the self is is there through that creative process and and through those biographical references, of course, in a kind of literal way.
2: Roy, there's some there's a room that we see as we w- walk through the gallery but in some ways I-, I went to it last of all that was my narrative which is the only room in the in the exhibition in the gallery with natural light where there's a tree an apple tree I think and there are frag- there's a there's a fragment of a body a, a Christian body take us through this piece how did you how did you encounter this how did you read this?
4: Well, I was particularly interested in the mistletoe growing on the apple tree. That's what caught my eye. I don't know why, possibly because, of course, mistletoe is a plant full of folklore, so therefore automatically drawn to it. And, of course, with the fragments of Christ in the background, it reminds you of the 18th century carol, Christ the Apple Tree, which is very popular in the Diocese of Hereford. Hereford, of course, being an apple-growing country and I have an interest in mistletoe and apple because it's widely said that mistletoe parasitizes apple and it's a one-way relationship but my own opinion is that sometimes the mistletoe is also giving things back to the apples and occasionally you see very old apple trees loaded in mistletoe which I think would otherwise be dead but during the winter possibly when the tree cannot make its own food Uh, but the mistletoe is still photosynthesizing, then I think there is some seepage from the mistletoe into the apple. So I think things are far far more complex than many people imagine. So those are my initial feelings about the piece. Interesting that natural
2: light is here and yet the tree is dead, I mean, dying before our eyes, whereas in the other room, uh, it's artificial light and plants are still surviving or thriving.
0: Mm, that's one of the paradoxes, isn't it? It's sort of amazing when you realize it and it's slightly it slightly transforms things for you when I went into that room, it's so, so unspeakably lovely to see that tree just erupting in that clinical white room and then you notice the figure of the Christ um, the Christ figure are, are up on the wall behind you and of course you make the connections to, I was thinking of the dream of the Rood, the medieval poem about the tree from which Christ's cross was was built and all of those stories but then you realize that it's not just christ who is dying but the tree is dying because of course it has no roots here and it has to be erected it has to be held up by this the 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 wooden frames that that keep it upright and so suddenly it becomes sort of has a plangency to it doesn't it that it's reaching for this natural light that would sustain it, but it is dying in front of our eyes, and I think perhaps that speaks to your point, margot that there is a dark side always there is always nothing is as straightforward as it, it imagines nothing as you might imagine nothing is as straightforwardly beautiful uh, f- uh, for you to accept and, and and your earlier question, Tim, about where is 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 jan in this i I think that his sensibility is visible in all of those things, and hit the ambiguity of his sensibility is visible in all of those rooms. And actually, that's quite a rare thing for an artist. It's hard, I think, for artists to make their sensibility apparent in all their works. The, the kind of wry humour, the intelligence, the enthusiasm for botany, all of those things are him and they are there in those rooms. Yeah,
3: and it, it, he it talking about uh, his sensibility as well. I mean, he does use the word beauty when, you're t- when you talk to him quite a lot and things being beautiful and, and they really are and there is poetry to the work and it can be deeply moving in whichever you know this tree piece being a case in point point. and there are also the light pieces by Noguchi the Japanese American sculptor and Noguchi's been such a an influence throughout and he's talked about him as being a guiding line throughout his work and saying that he had an expression of freedom openness and hybridity all of which I think, you know, clearly apply to Yang's practice, and he strove to create something universal through the combining of the natural and the man-made. And in the room with the tree, I think that's really poignant because there's the tree that's dying, but it's been propped up by a sort of intervention of, of um, humans to try and save it. But you know, there's the, again that tension between the natural and, and the man-made, which. Yeah, I think is so
2: poignant. It's interesting you mentioned Naguchi because, of course, trees are, are many things. But I mean, there were you know early early sites of human worship. But the notion of a tree or a family tree or lineage, I mean, lineage and human history, and his his own personal connectedness to different artists of the past and the way he's worked with them, but also our own connectedness, atavistically, to our distant ancestors is is always there. the The other aspect is mm-hmm. exhibition of his is. uh, it's brought together, and then either through natural cycles of destruction or willful destruction and the dispersal of the market, I mean, there are pieces in this exhibition that will be acquired by collectors, and so the whole will never again be reconfigured uh, and, and it becomes dispersed, but also the pieces that are taken away and put in different collections in different museums will subtly shift meaning and context, but also will form... I mean, the idea of the artwork as a kind of votive offering or a, or a contemporary shrine, we, we worship whatever our religions, we, we tend to go to museums and galleries, and whether we, we, we're conscious of it or not, we, it's some kind of act of veneration, isn't
0: it? Maybe this isn't intentional. It's hard to, to imagine what is intended or not, but it, it does feel like a challenge to those parts of the art industry, and you know, particularly the, the letter that his father writes and is sold each time is commissioned again and again and the, and the found objects. I, I feel like there is a, a kind of, not quite a critique, but a kind of toying with the conventions of art. And I, I do think that that idea that the wholeness of a collection that will be dispersed tells you, and dispersed or destroyed or become ash, is is right that the idea of a wholeness or a narrative or whatever you want to call it is a fiction it is an illusion you would know that if you were a deracinated person who had had to leave everything they owned behind and start life somewhere else would move several several times and so you're right that when roy finds something difficult to understand of course it's difficult to understand because there is no whole to grasp he's constantly dismantling dispersing interrupting your, the, the, the purchase you might have on something. And I, I, that can't help but feel deliberate.
2: Roy, you've spent your life uh, immersed in and looking at and studying nature. Art is supposed to offer a different way of seeing the world, sometimes subtly, sometimes almost um, without us being aware of it. Has this exhibition changed in any way your experience of the natural
4: world, even for a fleeting second? I found it very interesting what particularly Margot's had to say about the exhibition, which now means it means far more to me than it did before. Yes, you were talking earlier about, you know, visiting art galleries as almost being a religious experience, but why do we need to go to art galleries to get this experience? Because when I saw the logs and the flag, that instantly took me back to a pile of logs I saw when I was walking the Kent coast near Rukulva. And about seven years ago, and this pile of logs had just been thrown into a shed was just about the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So, you know, we must be open at all times rather than just open our eyes when we wander into a gallery. So that's... I, I, I liked the uh, flag and the mm. logs. They said a lot to me. But on the other hand, the, my immediate, immediate reaction was going back to that day when I was walking along the Kent coast, which, of course, is...
3: I what- mean-
2: was doing isn't it which is bringing those fleeting moments into the gallery and making us look at them in a different kind of way
3: yeah I, well I was just going to say that really that I you, nobody has to go to a gallery it's a, a, an optional activity but I feel that with you know art that with great art or even good art makes you think about things slightly differently when you walk out again and so even that story that you told about the pile of wood and it being the most beautiful thing you'd ever seen I mean maybe this exhibition has reinforced your appreciation of that most beautiful thing you know which in itself is it's making you kind of reevaluate your relationship to the visual world and natural world around us and I think that's something that that Jan's work really does do um, I think the other thing about the you were talking about the uh, Tim about the gallery being a sort of contemporary religious experience, and the I suppose the the value that is bestowed upon artworks, which is culturally specific and is also time d- d- located in particular time frame and social context. So, I but I think that's something which clearly Yanbo's toying with as well I mean the word toying was used before and it's just that it's like if you take a piece of of an ancient sculpture and you put it in a carnation box and then that's made something which is a work of art that has a value in the artwork in in the art market contemporary art market that is that is a process in itself and a reflection on the way the art market works and the way value is bestowed on disparate objects. Or not.
0: I was going to say, just I agree that listening to Margot's expertise about Jan's life and his process really enriches the exhibition because without it, it's quite hard to gain purchase on that work. But the the thing that I came away thinking was that, you know, galleries could be warm, first of all, galleries could have plants in them, that our gallery experience does not have to be the way that it it is. And also that maybe we should all spend a lot more time in allotments because they're very enriching experiences.
2: On which profound note (laughs) (laughs) we should end. I would say that um, Jean Vaux's exhibition, Chicxulub, is on at White Cube Bermondsey until the 2nd of November. So people will still have a chance to see that uh, up to the eve of the presidential election. Meanwhile, can I thank Shahida Barry, Roy Vickery and Margot Heller very much for taking part in this discussion, which has been uh, profound and open-ended, as uh, Jan Vaux would expect. And we're all now off to walk
1: the Kent coast, I think. Thank you all.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.